Welcome to the Bill Kelly Podcast. I'm Bill Kelly. Today, developers have given up on a building, a boutique hotel that was supposed to go into Gore Park. City of Hamilton has blocked public access to the legendary waterfront Rum Runner Caves. And the CMA says Canadians want political parties to get back to basics and make health care a priority. The Bill Kelly Podcast starts now. Today on the Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. First of all, I want to talk about what's happening at Gore Park, because this has been a very contentious item for quite some time right now. Uh, there's been some wonderful things happening down there, and they continue to happen. The Leuna building that's going on at the corner of Houston and King, uh, very excited about that. But one of the more contentious items uh, is the other side of Gore Park, and uh, on the, uh, the the north side, of, or south side, rather, of Gore Park. Uh and, and it goes to do with the two or three di- different addresses. Uh, and these were old buildings that had been run down a little bit. Uh, finally, somebody came along just a little while ago and had some fabulous ideas about putting a boutique hotel there. And uh, we're going to get you the details on that in a couple of seconds. The bad news is it looks like the idea has fallen apart now for a whole lot of reasons. And uh, joining us to talk about this is Bill Curran. Bill is a, an architect, a well-renowned architect here in the Hamilton area, of course, with a Thier and Curran Architects. Incorporated, who have done an awful lot of work on some of these buildings in the downtown area. And uh, he joins us on the Bill Kelly Show to talk about this. Uh, I guess the first question I got, Bill, what went wrong here? What's gone on? Well, I think, uh, you know, what you see with a lot of people that have these great ambitions for uh, transformative projects is that they expect them to come together in a timely manner. And the barrier to that is uh, approvals from City Hall and the planning department. The building department is generally excellent. We get building permits in four to six weeks for most projects. But what we're seeing consistently is uh you know months and years for projects we have two projects recently that are just about to start construction finally one on the gore at 121 a condo building um which is a great news story um toronto developer partnered with effort trust and it took us almost two years to get site plan approval for a renovation of an existing building and uh we also have the gasworks down on park street north which is a, the nonprofit run by the vortman foundation basically an old house they stage music events and uh, church services and other things, and and again, almost two years to get an addition on the back of a house in the downtown. And I kind of think it's kind of indicative of what's squashing, um, you know, these kind of transformative projects. And we run into the same problems on the Gore. Is this a new problem? I mean, I mean, because you've worked on stuff in the past in different oh, places. Yeah. Uh, you and Tim Potisic did an awful lot, of course, on the James Street renovation yeah, some years ago. Yeah, and we did no hardware at uh, hey. 95 King Street East across the yeah. Gore without any sort of hiccups. Uh, and, uh, you know, there, there's lots of other things happening, but, you know, site plan approval, most people may not understand is a project, uh, approval process that goes through the planning that really is supposed to, you know, protect, uh, the public domain, uh, from buildings that are, you know, poorly placed or that aren't set up to contribute to a proper streetscape. Um, but, you know, somehow, you know, for an existing building where you're not actually planning any of the site, you're just renovating, maybe adding a couple floors on top. It just has become a very unwieldy and glacial process. Uh, and that discourages people like Patrick Birmingham, who you know, was extraordinarily frustrated with the amount of time it took uh, to get the approvals in place for this building. We should have been in construction. And in fact, we're not even at the point where we can do building permit. Well, and, and I understand uh, from the story I read today that he's pretty frustrated about this. And, and you know, this is, this is the thing that I get upset about because this is a guy that puts his money where his mouth is and yep. says, I'm going to invest in downtown. Uh, when a lot of people weren't doing it back then, he's just said, let's go full bore into this thing. And he hired you and he got some p- other people involved in this. You've done some design work on this. Uh, yeah, he's invested heavily in this project. So, so where, where is the holdup? Is it once it gets to the planning department? Yes. And it, I mean, it, it also is a problem beyond Hamilton, but Hamilton seems to be the poster child for what the Ontario Association of Architects is calling the broken site plan process. And they're saying it's costing Ontario $900 million per year uh, due to the delays in site plan approval. And, and that's on the conservative side. Uh, and a lot of it's just glacial bureaucracy and, uh, and the, pace of, uh, the pace of city staff of processing and decision making. But it, to, and again, I don't want to get too much inside baseball here. But I mean, there is a planning process, and you know, there are time frames for this. You know, it has to be public notice and things of this nature. But at some point, you'd like to think that they can expedite things. I mean, this is not your first rodeo. You've done this before. No, and I mean, we've seen you know, you see a, a flagship project like uh, Canada Bread or Maple Leaf Foods up on the mountain, where they're turning around site plan approval for a brand new massive plant with you know, factory and road implications and sewers. Uh, and all this stuff, and they're, you know, giving them special approval in like, you know, 90 days, 60 days. Uh, and then we have these major projects downtown where it's much more important to the, 
you know, the, the, the core, which is the heart of our community, and we're taking years to do them, and we're seeing these sort of silly barriers. You know, we've had the, the uh, gas works just held up because the city didn't have enough water pressure uh, in the downtown core, which would have not allowed any development uh, west of Jane Street. And it took them six months to figure out an approach to, um, to allow that, and it's a, an addition on a house. There's a, you and I have had these discussions in the past, and, and, and I don't want to get individuals and get personal about this, but it just seems, and, and, and this is going to go back a few years, uh, that, that, that it just, I, I think John Dolbeck, who used to work for the Hamilton Chamber of Commerce, once said that, uh, you know, instead of rolling out the red carpet, they roll out the red tape, and, and it's frustrating everybody. I thought we were over that, but now from what no, you're telling me. No, I mean, the, the Open for Business Committee of uh, the city has become uh, a red tape you know, glacial, you know, sort of committee as well. And the Chamber of Commerce, the Home Builders Association, all these people are pulling their hair out and over and over, like broken records, are, are talking about the challenges with planning approvals. And no one seems to be listening and there's no leadership to make it better. Uh, and, uh, you know, there's a, this report from the Ontario Association of Architects with hard numbers also talks about the fact that the timelines that are in place by provincial law are just generally ignored. Uh, and no one seems to care. And that's the really frustrating part. Well, the leadership uh, problem. Well, the, uh, yeah, else. but Bill, as you and I know, and, I, and, and I, a lot of other people in town that seem to want to invest here know, that there's a, a, a window of opportunity when these sorts of things come up, isn't there? That yes. We want to get everything done. These people are, are you know, here's our, here's our cash, here's our investment, here's our design, here's what we want to do. The more frustrated they get, we've had this happen before, they walk away. They just yeah, say, we'll go they, someplace and, else. And they have tenants. So in the case of the, you know, the, the uh, Beverly Hotel, they have a food and beverage tenant in Aaron Dunham of the other bird. And they had, uh, you know, it was like the best operator in town. And then they had a hotel operator from the Beverly Hotel in Toronto. And both were keen to see things happen or they have to go and do their project somewhere else with someone else. And that's in both cases what we've seen happen. You know, Patrick's lost his operators as well out of frustration with the timing. What, what, what did that, I, I don't get this. What didn't they like about this project? Uh, well, you know, you've got uh, in, planners do not receive any architectural or aesthetic training. They are, at the end of the day, policy people who move paper around. That doesn't mean that the, they don't think that they have an, you know, aesthetic uh, opinion. And everyone with a Pinterest board these days has an aesthetic opinion. And they just kind of get into things that are kind of beyond their mandate, beyond their training, uh, and they bog things down. And perhaps with the best of intentions, but the reality is. They shouldn't be sticking their nose into the aesthetics of the community in this way. And, and is that is that what this was? That was all about your design work, the, the, the yeah. aesthetics. Yeah, we received on the ninety five King. We received zero urban design comments, as they call them. On uh, you know one twenty one King, the condo, we received zero comments. And on this building, we received twenty one comments, which basically said, "Change this, change that, move the window here, do this, change the you know the dividing bar in the window like this." Uh, but the big thing was they just didn't like the design in any way. It was too bold. And we think it's actually quite modest, but they said it was too bold. It's too different. You can't have anything projecting out over the gore. And we said, well, lots of things project out over the gore. If anyone's gone by the, you know, the Connaught Hotel in the last hundred years, there's a bit of a sign. It's about 50 feet long, about 20 feet deep. It's been hanging out over the gore, uh, you know, as, a, as an entrance canopy for a hundred years. The, you know, the, the Effort Square building has massive canopies hanging out over all of its entrances. The Sapinka Courthouse has massive uh, canopies hanging over its entrances. And just down the street, the Art Gallery of Hamilton has a massive sign that sticks out over the entire roadway. And no one's talking about any of these uh, elements as being architecturally uh, incompatible with downtown. But someone in the planning department with no aesthetic training feels that our projecting balcony up at the fifth floor, which just gives people a unique ability to walk out over the gore on a, a five-foot-wide balcony, um, is not compatible. And it just kind of you know, bogs everything down. Bill, I want to be clear about this, though. When they make these comments, I use your term, uh, and, and they say, change this, do this, put this window over here, are, are they doing it because uh, because they feel that the design is non-compliant? In other words, there are certain codes that have to be followed, or is there, it that they, are, or is it they just don't like it? And in, in particular, that you know they, they're there. We asked them to quote where in the policies these items were, you know, were, were uh, you know, not compliant, and we got no response. They actually have refused to respond to us. And that just stalls everything. It's just a personal, subjective, um, you know, opinion from someone with no architectural training. 
But again, for anybody who's gone through this, even if they're doing an addition or putting a you know a deck in the back of a house, you have to get a building permit. They got come in and say, no, that's non-compliant. You have to do it this way. And you yeah, said, okay, fine, with, but with that's rules. that's but, not but what's going on here, to, is it? When it comes to these kind of elements, there aren't so many rules. There are policies and guidelines that are broader, uh, and and that's where it becomes a bit more tricky. This isn't a building permit process where it says it doesn't comply with the building code. This is an aesthetic thing, and we have you know we have the the opinion of. You know, an architect against a untrained, uh, you know, a planner with no architectural training. You sound pretty frustrated. Yeah, it is. I think, and you know, I'm, I'm very frustrated as a Hamiltonian to lose this project in the downtown. The gore is languishing, uh, with no sort of hope in sight of any renewal. And we have this amazing opportunity with all the right people, an amazing team of uh, developers and operators, and now it's all gone. And now the building will sit rotting for more years. Well, what, which is kind of coming back to square one now, isn't it? I mean, it is. when, when it this is. whole thing and, came... You know, the Gore, the gore is, is not a happy spot right now. There's very little, you know, life on that south side of the Gore at the street level. Certainly the Connaught coming back is fantastic, but there's nothing else. There's Red Church uh, down the street, but there's no signs of, uh, you know, of any uh, rehabilitation happening, and we need that to be a vital, peaceful place. The Gore is our piazza, our town square, and right now it's a mausoleum. But but again, especially these areas and these properties that we're talking about. I mean, you know, this this came back into in public view and into prominence again a few years ago when there was the threat of actually demolition permits for these things, and then all of a sudden there was a, a an eleventh hour attempt to save this, and and you know that kind of fell through. Mister Birmingham steps up a little while ago and says, "Wait a minute, I can do something like this." This yeah, I mean, this had all the markings of being a, a the, the Dave Blanchard properties one it, block to the west. Yeah, um, that are still sitting fenced off with no action after. Probably eight years, uh, and they continue to rot as well. And that's just you know another sort of indicator of you know a, a problem with the process. But at that time, we had this grand vision of how the south side of that of that gore was going to look. There was going to be it was going to be transformational. I mean, you know, the, the Chester's be, yeah. Chester's was gone. All these other places that were gone, yeah. and, and we thought, well, that's okay. That's okay. That's circle of life. We can replace this, and there's going to be more vibrancy there. Uh, there's going to be residential. There's going to be commercial. You talked about the idea of a boutique hotel, uh, and uh, <laughs> we're nowhere now. And none of it's going on. None of it's happening. No, it's, 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 it's very sad as a Hamiltonian, you know, beyond my attachment to the project. It's just so frustrating and, of course, so unnecessary. You think you should be rolling out the red carpet for people that are coming in to invest with these sort of, uh, you know, transformative ideas. But instead, it's, uh, you know, what can we find fault with? Well, I talked to a well-known developer a couple of years ago about a similar situation. He was very frustrated, very similar to what you're saying here. And he said, look, at he says, we, we put a lot of time, effort, and money into this stuff. And you know, we're trying to make our community better. It's not just about making big bucks here. It's about trying to make this a better downtown. And he said, I'd, I'd like to work with somebody at the city that says, okay, how can we make this work instead of giving me 10 reasons why it can't? Uh, I, I totally agree. Even, you know, we've got uh, very few construction cranes in downtown Hamilton, if you look at other communities. And we should, and we need them. Retail in the downtown core is still very, very, very poor. We have very little office space that's activated. We've got, you know, on paper, 20% plus vacant office space. We don't have the office towers going up. Uh, In Kitchener, they're building new office towers. We don't have any of that. And that commercial growth is also about tax revenue and long-term jobs. And to be able to stimulate that, we should probably, in my mind, have like the best, quickest, uh, smoothest approvals process at all uh, in all of, you know, Ontario. And we should pride ourselves on that. And instead, we've got, you know, kind of a gong show. Well, you know, I, I envision something like a SWAT team, you know, a, a planning SWAT team that's going to say, yeah, this is a downtown project that we really need to ha- see happen. Let's get this going. Let's do what or we can. Or do something bold and, and innovative, which, you know, I, I'm trying to think of anything innovative that's ever come out of the planning department in my lifetime. But, uh, you know, the, in Toronto, they had the Two Kings project where they waived all planning rules uh, for the King and Parliament and King and Bathurst neighborhoods for two or three years. And it transformed those neighborhoods in a flash because all of a sudden, People didn't have to go through planning approvals. They could go straight to building permit for whatever they wanted, and the neighborhoods took off. Is this uh, dead in the water now, this project? Yeah, as far as I know. It's for sale. It's on MLS. So if anyone wants to buy it, you can buy it today. Uh, well, it's it's. Uh, I, I share your frustration. and This is not the way things were supposed to roll out. Bill, really appreciate the time. Thanks so much for being with us today. Anytime, Bill. Great to talk to you. Okay, Bill Curran, of course, uh, architect and uh, uh, frustrated architect, obviously, because they thought they had something kind of special going on there. And I guess the delays and no, do it this way, no, do it this way. And 
Finally, Mr. Birmingham, who's uh, was the money, the investor, just said, "Look, enough," because he lost his 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 two clients, the the tenants, the the restaurant, the the hotel owner, just said, "We can't wait. We got other things to do," and that's the that's the problem you run into when you get too many delays and too much red tape. People walk away. Sad. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. I want to bring Jason Farr into the contest uh, and uh, into our con- uh, conversations right now, too. Uh, we want to talk about what's going on down on the waterfront uh, because there's some pretty exciting stuff that's going on uh, there, and it looks like the time frame for that is starting to unfold right now. And so we're pleased to welcome Ward 2 Councillor Jason Farr to the program. How are you doing this morning, Jay? Not too bad. I don't get to uh, point counterpoint our friend uh, Bill Curran. Well, I'm going to uh, give you some time. Yeah, I just want to say we'll get to the waterfront in front. Right. Listen, as a counselor, though, Jay, because sure. you've, you've had your hands on this file right from the get-go, the south side of the gore. It's got to be frustrating when this sort of thing happens. Oh, oh, no doubt. Big time. I mean, it was probably, I was the second meeting I had, Red Church Cafe with Birmingham and Curran, right after the election. And I had found that in February, the purchase was made. And and uh, uh, shortly after our meeting and, and uh, all the plans you just heard about, and I wanted the same thing as quickly as possible to turn it around because I thought it was a fabulous idea. And, and, and the designs and the drawings from Bill were on the table along with some pretty good coffee. Uh, I did everything I could. I mean, you go to the planning department. I, I'm not an expert. You weren't an expert in planning. Most counselors don't have that uh, pedigree, but so we rely on our staff and uh, and said this is a renovation, just as Bill suggested at the time and, and Patrick uh, believed in as well. This is not requiring a site plan. Let's add a couple of floors. Let's put this beautiful architecture, award-winning architecture, I'm sure, had it uh, come to fruition and uh, bill's got a few of those awards from the city over the years yep. probably will get a few more he's uh he's a fine architect no doubt about it unfortunately through planning policy bill uh it was deemed not to be a renovation that the floors in particular this uh the, the center of the controversy i would suggest this protruding balcony uh made it uh, a requirement uh, through policy and this and every other city uh for site plan and so that takes a little bit longer but uh you know unofficially i think i was very clear as the elected official let's roll out a red carpet let's make this work uh, patrick uh, certainly is still obviously from today's article bullish uh on on investing in the downtown has another property he's going to get going but he he was very interested in the sooner rather than later approach i think probably because of the investors and the idea that he had and the partners that he had uh, unfortunately, it didn't it didn't work out that way. Now, but one of the things that Bill said that you know a long time ago, Chad Collins and I moved a motion to create this design review committee. This isn't staff; these are peer reviews from fellow architects, many of them from outside of the city, who comment on on design and architecture. It's not uh, when it comes down to an approval process through committees and and staff something that that we need to adhere to. We just appreciate their comments, and it, be, it informs a report, but it's not a requirement. The only item, the only item outstanding was this protruding balcony in terms of the policy and the site plan. And that's where I think uh, there was this disconnect. It, it, you know, I, I try to keep my opinions on design out of the equation because, again, I, I haven't been trained. As Bill rightly notes, it's not my position to say you should use this color or you should protrude this or you should add a flag stick. Well, did you like the design? I absolutely loved it. Absolutely. I mean, a lot of people did. I'm sure there were some heritage uh, folks that, uh, in fact, I know there was one, I I can only tell you of one, maybe two, that uh, did have some questions. And again, only about this protruding balcony. Uh, Again, not a requirement of, of, uh, there weren't authorities uh, who needed to be adhered to in in a policy. It was more of a comment from heritage, uh, you know, activists in in the community. But it's not, uh, it wasn't a safety issue, was it? They, otherwise, the same as me, also love the idea of the redevelopment of the property. Sorry, Bill, what did you? Ask it's it, it, it's not as, as if this is a safety issue. They just they just no. didn't like the look of it. Uh, not even so much the the look. I think it's just the, the, it was the. You know, Bill made reference to uh, past approvals. One, I think, the, the Royal Connaught, which has been around for 100 years. John Savinkas has been around a long time, too. There are new policies in place, quite obviously. The Art Gallery of Hamilton reference, that sign's probably been up there 30 years. So the Gore is, uh, in, as far as the downtown secondary plan, it's a, it's a primary focus, quite obviously. there are. Uh, it is a heritage district. There, There's a, a, a great deal of importance to maintaining the architectural character. 
uh, but also embracing uh, new ideas and concepts that uh, promote the redevelopment of this our city center, our our public promenade. Uh, so, so again, there there were many comments by his peers on this uh, design review panel that council approved about six years ago. Many architects, by the way, locally supported the design review panel for the very reason Bill has rightly had concerns about. They didn't. They wanted to take the concepts and ideas and designs uh, approvals away from city staff, so to, to an extent, and allow their peers in the world of architecture to make those comments and inform approval reports. And so we did that. I don't think Bill at the time, or obviously currently, is not is not very supportive of a design review panel. But at least we we listened to most architects who said we do need a third party group. They meet you know every few months. They tackle a great deal of issues as it relates to architecture and design, mostly exterior. And those comments again, they're not. They're those are those are comments. They're, they're a commenting body for approvals. They're not. Uh, uh, set in stone in terms of the approval process. The only thing as it relates to the site plan was the protruding balcony. And with the new downtown secondary plan, we do have rules in place that protects the gore. This balcony would have protruded over, uh, you know, uh, an area that you're very familiar with uh, once a year when you do your remembrance days ceremonies and so forth. You know, and and it's it's a tough one. Uh, We've worked expeditiously with Bill on a number of projects in the past. He's highlighted a few a few moments ago with you where it's taken some time. And unfortunately, that's the case. We're dealing with an older part of the city. In some parcels, it's a lot more difficult than others. With him and the transformation of Mexican, that was essentially a demolition, and we called it a, a renovation, and that went fairly quickly. Uh, as he noted, and also in the paper today, over on King Street, a block down and across the road, there's a project that's gone pretty smoothly with the partnership with Effort Trust and the Toronto developer condoizing that corner right in an LRT stop, others have been more of a challenge. And he pointed out some of the more challenging ones that he's been associated associated with as an architect. The one thing I'll say about Bill, respect him greatly. He's one of the great characters of the city. He's one of the great proponents of developing the city. I completely understand his frustration, but unfortunately there's another side to this, and that's provincial policy that we have to follow. Okay, but the the other element to this too is, is the bottom line here is if we're standing at Gore Park right now looking on the south side, uh, you've got two what should have been projects probably completed by now that are both sitting there with no no hope in sight of anything happening anytime soon out of those i i mean there's got to be some discussion with staff about this stuff jay to say look at oh, there is we we you know we just if like i said earlier because i when i was on council years ago i had some people that complained to me about staff of those days i don't think there was anybody left from those days but that was the that was the mantra and you heard that i mean you heard that when you ran for council the first time is that the the planning staff here would find ways to not make things happen. You know, no, you can't do it this guy, you can't do that because of this, because of this, as opposed to somebody saying, okay, look, at there's some challenges here, but let's try to make this work. And I'd like to think that's the mindset now, but at the same time, when you hear stories like this and and, and Mr. Birmingham losing his partners and basically saying, I got to walk away from this now, that's that's more than frustrating. I get the sense with Patrick just on this case that uh, he he didn't want to be an owner-operator. He wanted to own but have another operator. I think from a performance standpoint that came after the fact, a lot of things were happening very quickly uh, from that first meeting at the Red Church Cafe. Uh, uh, The performance didn't work, and yeah, uh, uh, some of the people he wanted to, I guess, partner with or lease from him decided that they wanted to do some other things, and that that stinks if part of that is because we had to go through uh, the proper process, the site plan process versus a renovation, uh, then, you know, it, it's, it, I'm, I'm as frustrated, let's put it that way. But I think for the most part, I mean, you, you know, I'm hearing we're not seeing a lot of cranes. I can tell you there's been a number of cranes and a lot of those projects are much, much larger than these projects and they've, they've turned over fairly quickly. I mean, if you were to do a poll of those who have redeveloped or developed in the last eight years in downtown Hamilton, I would suggest, I think, Quite confidently, most would say that they had very little to no issues in terms of turning these projects around and making them happen. The Spalachi, Brancor, there's there's hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of new residential units, thousands, and new commercial spaces that have been built in the process of being built and more coming. And, and there's, I think, three, four cranes right now in downtown. So, so there are others who have different uh, interpretations of experiences with city staff. That said, very well aware bureaucracy, red tape, it, it can be a problem and it can be frustrating, but it, it tends to be, I noticed in my time, sort of site-specific, and this was a tougher site given the uh, 
constraints, mostly on just this protruding balcony issue that maybe delayed things more than the proponents wanted. Well, we'd just like to see more wins, and these these are two that should have been and could have been, but they aren't as of yet. All right, listen, I only got a few minutes left now. It was important that we had that conversation, so I'm glad I'm glad we did that. But it was a good call. Let's 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 talk now about uh, about what's happening down on the waterfront. And again, here's a project that's been in the works for over 25 years, I guess. Uh, and there have been some delays and some stumbling blocks uh, to do with uh, what the redevelopment down around that area. And it sounds as if you start going to start moving forward on that now. Yeah, there's work happening right now. Shoreline work actually being tendered on Pier 6 and 7. So that's just to the west of Pier 8 where the condos are, are, are coming and, and the uh, Cops Park is happening. So the shoreline work uh, tendered this summer, so in a few months. And the, and the actual work, the rehabilitation on Pier 6 and 7, starts in the fall of 2019 just think foot of james and and go west of there uh where where all the action is is already started to to prep for that work pier 8 uh to the east uh just across discovery drive that massive swath you'll see all the demolitions have occurred the shoreline work is already being constructed anybody who's gone down to williams for a coffee that'll be uh, completed very soon late spring and uh, my understanding is we're on time what follows there is a pumping station, so we can get all that infrastructure working for the pending development and the promenade park, which we're all very excited about. We had that call-out contest. We tendered that uh, last year, and, and uh, the work itself will begin in the winter. It, it's a tender for the actual project, summer, fall, but the work will begin in the winter on on the uh, pumping station and the Peoria Promenade Park, sorry, already tendered. Uh, now called Cops Pier, is underway with uh, the shoreline work. That's all around Pier 8 to the east of uh, Discovery Drive or, or Williams uh, Coffee. And then, of course, with the delays, there's, yeah, it has been... Well, we're specifically time. talking about around Macassa Bay. Uh, Macassa Bay is, is sort of, uh, well, are you referring to the uh, old tunnels there? or Well, there's the, the tunnels, there's the, there's the reconstruction, of course. Uh, McDonald Marina, I guess, is finally leaving. Right. Uh, and that that was a, a controversial issue for many many years. Yeah, a lot of a lot of phasing in the tier projects and some movement in terms of uh, sort of project uh, scope changing timelines. But uh, if you kind of look at it generally, the focus now is pier six, seven, and eight. So foot of James and to the west uh, and to the east uh, for six and seven primarily. Um, and, and, and we were looking at, you know, the, for example, as part of this massive, uh, West Harbor redevelopment, by now we would have addressed the issues at Bayfront Park as it relates to the beach. That's just one of many, many projects that are under the umbrella of the West Harbor development. We shifted that around and instead started to focus more on expeditiously getting at Pier 6, 7, uh, promenade work. So this is a very public, uh, space, public piazza. There's a, a group of residents now meeting on the public art that we're going to see there at the foot of James, uh, the, the four or five buildings that are going to go as part of that uh, uh, pedestrianized space along the waterfront where we're opening up the shoreline all around, Bill. And so some things have shifted uh, around Macasa Bay, McDonald Marina. We already know we're going to have a, a temporary facility for Hamilton Police. We need to keep the Marine unit down in our harbor. Uh, longer term, they're going to build at the former McDonald Marina. Uh, that plan obviously has been quite public for probably a couple of decades. And as a tenant, uh, the former McDonald Marina tenant uh, has had lots of extra time to kind of get the docks and his former building that he's built on the city site out of there. And I think we extended almost 20 years that uh, lease agreement when you add it all up, uh, which kind of speaks to how, how, how much time it's taken to get this waterfront uh, development going. Uh, that said, I think what we're doing now, we're, we're in overdrive and we're doing it right, and it's uh, some very exciting times, and you're seeing lots and lots of work uh, occurring down there. Listen, well, yeah, what about the caves? I mean, Andrew Dreschel wrote, uh, wrote about this, of course, in the Spectator today. They're blocked off right now, and I'm told that uh, it's for safety reasons, essentially. But long term, uh, you want to make this a people place. Uh, frankly, those caves are part of Hamilton's heritage. Uh, and and I know a lot of people would like to see these uh, open to the public again. It may take a little bit of work to make sure that there are, there are safety issues being addressed. But do you see that happening? Oh, for sure. Uh, we've spoken quite publicly with uh, culture staff and in various meetings over the years about you know uh, opening up to that, that that opening up the caves to the public. It is a huge part of uh, Hamilton's history. However uh, nefarious uh, you may want to look at it now. 
uh, or uh, however nefarious it was in the past, but it certainly is our history, and that's something we uh, do anticipate getting at. No timeline set. Uh, uh, Andrew has inspired once again uh, this councillor to probably look at something a little more aesthetically pleasing in terms of uh, you know the closure. The closure, of course, for safety issues at this point. That's a very exposed underground tunnel with no real engineering report and probably no engineering uh, done other than some very creative uh, Hamiltonians with shovels way, way back when the caves were created. But for public safety, we have to close it off. Can we do that in a more aesthetically pleasing fashion? I think I've been inspired by today's article to kind of take a look at that. It probably won't take a lot of uh, tax dollars to uh, maybe put something up that also speaks to the history. It it, it is a note or two to the public of what this entrance is and uh, hopefully some timelines on when people will be able to sort of uh, take a peek inside. Well, there's a lot of uh, business uh, operations uh, going on back in those days, and the caves played an essential role in that, too. And if you talk to any families uh, from from the North End back in those days, I mean, they've all got tales of, of you know, knowing this guy and seeing this and uh, maybe making a couple of uh, nickels helping load onto the trucks or onto the boats, whatever the case might be. And uh, I know it's been written about extensively about what went on in those days. And then the caves are part of that. And I'd hate to see them just, be, you know, shut it off to the side. I think that is part of our heritage and something to celebrate, uh, as as absolutely. other as other cities have done. Oh, absolutely. Uh, you know, that Sleeman Spear, I mean, their ads on TV that they pay big bucks for uh, tends to focus on, on the, the, the run-running and the and the uh, prohibition uh, uh, history that, that that company has. And they're... they're they're marketing that, and certainly that's something we can market here in, the, in, in this city as well. There, there's nobody I know, at least on council, who thinks uh, otherwise in, in all the conversations we've had in the past. So it's just a matter of time and, and dollars, and, and, and when we get to that piece of a massive you know, West Harbor redevelopment, uh, I think a lot of us will look forward to it, including our fine people from culture and tourism at the city. Jay, I appreciate you jumping on. The, the downtown, the Gore thing is, is a really important issue, and, and I, I, we we want to see nothing but good stories out of this thing. And, and this well, is it's a bit of a setback, and it's a little frustrating, but I, uh, that's why we had to bring you on and talk about this, and I really appreciate you jumping in on short I'm notice. Glad, I'm glad you brought Bill on, and Bill knows. I mean, it's a bucket list for me, too, Bill. Uh, this term of council, uh, it, it's going to it's got to happen. I mean, I'm very, very bullish on both sites and talked to you many times about the, the buildings between Houston and James. So we don't need to get into that, but I'm feeling very confident. There's, there's everything is in place, everything's set and there's definitely a market. There's a lot of people that have interest in heritage buildings in our core. And, uh, I, I think a lot of the public are going to be happy in the, in the next couple of years for sure. Downtown Councillor Ward 2 Councillor Jason Farr. Jay, thanks as always. We'll talk again soon. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. Well, with uh, growing evidence that the healthcare system is falling way behind, I think we all know that. We see it, that it, uh, ourselves just on a daily basis, really. Canadians are now putting political parties on notice for the upcoming federal election. Get back to basics, we say and make health care a priority. This is a new Ipsos report that was commissioned by the Canadian Medical Association. 53% of Canadians said they're worried about health care. Uh, now, I know I know that we're hearing some political leaders say, oh, no, the number one issue is the carbon tax. No, it's not. No, it's not. It's health care. Carbon tax is, is rated at about 20%. Health care, as we just mentioned, over 50%. Always has been health care, always will be. Politicians don't seem to get it, though. They always seem to water this down with their own perspective and try to couch this. And, and in the meantime, our healthcare system is, well, not to the point where we want it to be. So what are we going to do about this? Well, let's uh, bring Dr. Gigi Osler into the conversation from the Canadian Medical Association. Uh, doctor, thank you so much for the time. I'm glad you could join us today. Mr. Kelly, thanks for having me on. Well, listen, we talk about this before every election, and we always get politicians say, look, if I had a buck for every time somebody said, I'm going to reduce wait times if you vote for me, mm-hmm. uh, I'd be a rich man. Uh, but we don't seem to be making any headway. So they, they seem to be talking the talk, but they don't walk the walk. You're absolutely right. And you mentioned earlier on, Canadians consistently rank health care as the most important issue that they see facing themselves and facing our country. And this recent poll confirms that, you know, 53% of Canadians saying that uh, they're concerned about our health care system. And you're absolutely right. You talk to folks, and what are they concerned about? They're concerned about long wait times, a shortage of health care professionals, overcrowded hospitals. Two-thirds of those people surveyed are worried about provincial governments 
cutting healthcare services to balance their budgets. And I think Ontario, you're seeing that right now. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And so, you know, we, I think as Canadians, have a unique opportunity right now to ask our federal politicians to show leadership and make healthcare a priority. Six out of 10 Canadians say that they're going to vote for the political party that has the best plan for our, our health care system. And I, I think we need it. I think we need to start saying as Canadians, as doctors, we're going to say it. But I think everyday Canadians need to start asking our politicians, what are you going to do to make our health care system better? And, and the other thing that I find frustrating about this, because we obviously have talked about this an awful lot on the show, it's mm-hmm. not as if there are not alternatives. It's not as if there aren't templates in other parts of the world that we could say, you know what, we could borrow, we could learn from them. But we don't seem to want to do that. We just seem to, you know, making the same mistakes over and over again. I mean, I, I'm, I'm young enough to remember when this whole Medicaid system started back in the mid-1960s. The, mm-hmm. the federal government paid 50% of the cost. Mm-hmm. And and what are they at now, about 20 21%, something like this? Mm-hmm. It's ridiculous. So they have been slowly but surely eroding this, and, and we haven't really done a whole lot about it to hold, their free, to, to hold them accountable. You know, you make a really good point. And what I think part of the discussion has to be an understanding that the federal government transfers money to each of the provinces to uh, contribute to health care costs. And as you said, over the years, the federal government has transferred less money to the provinces, which means the provinces then have to come up with more money and find ways to balance their budget. Hence, you're seeing potentially some cuts to health care services, to public health in Ontario. And we've been looking at it, like if you look at our seniors right now, and I, I think that has to be one of the priorities. Right now in Canada... Under 20% of our Canadian population is age 65 or older, and yet our seniors need 50% of the health care dollars spent. And this is a group of Canadians, age 65 and older, that's only going to get bigger in the coming years, in the coming decades. And so the demand for health care dollars is only going to go up as our Canadian population gets older. So one of the things we've been, Canadian doctors have been saying is that the federal government needs to direct more money to provinces specifically to look after the health care needs of our seniors. And, you know, we've been saying as the Canadian Medical Association, somewhere along the lines of an extra $21 billion distributed amongst the provinces depending on how many seniors you have in that province. Uh, because otherwise, the demand for health care is going to go up as our seniors age, and it's going to be the provinces having to figure out how are we going to pay for this, and that may mean cuts to services. So, you know, I, I can't tell you how much I think this is an opportunity for every Canadian to do something about it. And when those politicians come knocking on your door, asking for your voice, we all need to be asking all of the candidates specifically, what is your plan to make the healthcare system better? Uh, and we need to make this a priority for our government because it's a priority for us as Canadians. It's got to be a priority for our government. Well, and there are ways to do this. And, and you mm-hmm. know, instead we get platitudes. You know, like I say, yeah, I'm going to reduce wait times, or I'm going to put this, I'm going to do this. But, you know, they, they take money from here and put it over here. And, and uh, this is, it's uh, it's not rocket science, really, Gigi. Mm-hmm. When you look at what has to happen here, I mean, you talked about hospital overcrowding. Uh, we know that there are people that are in hospital who shouldn't really be in hospital. They should be mm-hmm. in long-term care facilities, or maybe maybe should be getting home care. But we're not funding those aspects of it. So all of a sudden, everything gets dumped onto the hospital. Uh, yeah. You know that. I know that. And I'd like to think some people in government know that, too. But what are they doing about it? Well, Bill, you bring up a good point. So some services aren't currently covered by our, our current health care system. So... Folks are having to pay out of their own pockets for home care, out of long-term care. 
So potentially, is that another way that you know governments are going to be able to afford home care? It, services won't be covered. We're going to have to pay for it out of our own pocket. You know, you mentioned seniors. How many seniors are currently in hospital right now because there isn't a long-term care bed for them mm-hmm. or their families can't afford to pay for the bed and there's no home care to allow these folks to be able to go home. And so, you know, I think we just have to try to make this an issue for our politicians. Because like you said, we know it's an issue. And I think we have to make sure our politicians know it's an issue. And, you know, maybe we decide on who we're going to vote for based on what this politician or that politician is going to do to make health care better. There's an article, a study that was done in the Toronto Star, I guess it was about a year or so, I'm sure you saw it, doctor, that essentially said, vis-a-vis long-term care, uh, the costs are right here in the in the Hamilton, in the GTA, Hamilton to Toronto area here, 3500 to $5,000 a month. Now, how many mm-hmm. families can afford that? It's a lot of money. It is. And, and I totally agree. And I, I'm concerned I'm going to see more of my patients having to pay out of pocket for more services. Um you know, and it's just something that I think we as Canadians value our healthcare system so much that for us as Canadians not to speak up and speak out of, about it, um, I think we really risk major changes to it. Well, we've already seen the major changes, haven't we? I mean, as you saw, you know, one of the ways they do this, of course, is by delisting a number of services or maybe even medications that they covered. Uh, that, that and which is only going to be problematic. I mean, we've all seen these stories about people that are dealing with with terrible diseases, uh, and 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 you know, they they're paying for the medications themselves because the government's saying, "Sorry, we're not going to fund that anymore. We're trying to cut costs." They mm-hmm. look at it. Too many governments, including this one in Ontario, I'm afraid to say, look at healthcare as a line item on the budget. They don't look at it as a necessity for the population. Mm-hmm. And you know, pharmacare. You mentioned. Cost. The pharmacare is one of one of the answers to the problem, and we've always said as as doctors, patients should have access to the medications that they need that are medically necessary. And so it'll be interesting to see, you know, what you know comes about and what each party um, talks about in terms of a pharmacare plan. And I know Ontario has OHIP Plus, uh, but we. You know, we got to make sure that those who really need it, like our seniors, um, have access to their medically necessary drugs. Because we continue to hear stories about seniors who are having to decide between, you know, buying groceries and paying for their prescription medication. So there are multiple areas that need to be addressed. I don't think it's just as simple as saying, well, we're going to support pharmacare and that's it. Um, there's other issues that need to be looked at. So you can't just put a, a little Band-Aid solution on something like Canadian health care. And so, you know, again, that's why we're saying we need our federal parties to pay attention to this um, so that it doesn't come down to health care cuts. It doesn't come down to people having to ration groceries to pay for medications. Because I think Canadians deserve it. Listen, there was, a, I, I know, again, I, this is a study that I, can't, I think it was you, the CMA, released uh, just late last year, uh, mm-hmm. vis a vis seniors. Not only are they having to make choices between buying groceries or paying their rent or, or, or getting their meds, uh, sadly, what a lot of them are having to do now is simply saying, I can't fill the prescription. Uh, mm-hmm. and, and, well, that's medicine that they need. It's, it's, it's not an option as far as, as their medical futures are concerned, yet they simply say, I, I'm not going to fill it because I just don't have the money. Mm-hmm. That's not and the you- way the system's supposed to work. No, and you, and you know the other folks who are having to um, pick up more of the burden, well, I don't want to say burden, but more of the, the care are the caregivers for seniors. And so often it's a spouse or it's a family who are having to devote more time or go into their own pockets to pay for things like the medication like home care services, like assistive devices, things like that. So increasingly, we're seeing it become not just a, you know, a social issue or a policy issue for Canadians. It's becoming a real pocketbook issue as Canadians have to pay more and more for services that used to be covered or have never been covered but now are needed. You know, so we're looking at 
Now, our seniors, we're looking at the people who provide care to our seniors um, because they're going to need support as well as our population gets older. Well, we've had discussions about, for instance, joint replacement, which is uh, obviously a, you know much more frequent than it used to be 15, 20 years ago these days. Mm-hmm. And, and I, I've had the... I'm the beneficiary of two new knees. That's great. Uh, and and I, that's great. You know, I didn't have to cut a check for that when I got my knee replacements done. That's wonderful. But at the same time, where the other element that they never seem to talk about is the rehab after that, because the surgery is not a whole lot of good if you don't do the rehab. And, mm-hmm. and a lot of people I know that have these sorts of joint replacements say, I can't afford rehab. I can't do that. Mm-hmm. And that is part of trying to provide the health care that people need. You can't just give them the surgery. Like you said, they need the rehab afterwards. And if that's not covered, then it makes it even harder for people to get healthier after those types of, of joint surgeries. So, you know, you've hit the nail right on the head in terms of you know, we need to have a more comprehensive look at the whole healthcare system rather than little piecemeal solutions here and there. We kind of got lazy, I think, over the years. Uh, it just is just my analysis on this, uh, because initially, as I say, the the government's paid just about all of this stuff, and and they've been chipping away and paying less and less and less. But our our insurers, our, our carriers, actually kind of picked up, and you know, we negotiated that through contracts. If if you were in a union or whatever the case mm-hmm. might be, so some of that stuff was still covered. So we thought, okay, we're still good. We're still good. Well, of course, with precarious employment now, there are more and more people that don't have benefit packages, and, mm-hmm. and they have to do this on their own. And, and the government's saying, well, wait a second, you, you haven't asked us to do this for the last 25 years. Well, they've got to step up again. Mm-hmm. And, you know, sometimes younger Canadians who don't have a lot of health issues um, might not be aware of the issues that are facing our health care system. But you raise a good point about you don't have a job where you've got a health plan, uh, you're going to be at risk in case something happens to your health. You're going to wind up having to pay out of pocket. And there are lots of older folks out there, lots of seniors who don't have those insurance plans, who don't have that sort of insurance safety net. And so more and more, we're hearing stories about, you know, especially seniors with low incomes who really are having to sacrifice on things just in order to pay for their home care or pay for their medications. And so while it's nice when we as Canadians have some form of you know, private insurance through work, there are lots of Canadians that you don't, that don't have it. Like, you know, like you said, like the young folks with uh, precarious employment or not full-time work uh, or our seniors. And so, you know, I really think we have to, start having those conversations with all of the candidates from all of the political parties, whoever thinks they're going to form the next government. I think this is an incredible opportunity for us as Canadians to make health care a priority issue for our politicians. I think 47 cents out of every dollar, I think, uh, tax dollars spent on health care. Uh, and, and nobody wants to see that go up and up and up. But, I mean, at the same time, we have to spend judiciously, and I spend wisely in situations, and strategically, frankly, and I'm not so sure that we're doing that. And as, as I told you, I know you've studied other jurisdictions in the U.K. and in Scandinavian countries uh, who do a pretty decent job of health care delivery with their people. And, and uh, you know, we, we need to, to, I guess, you know, look beyond here and say maybe there's some things we can borrow, maybe there's some things we can do, and stop looking at this as a line item for governments and simply say this is what we need to do, this is the service that we need to provide for the, the, for the public. And that doesn't mm-hmm. just mean throw money. I don't. You, the CMA has never said just keep throwing more money at it. That's that's not the answer either. It's how you spend the money. I agree. So I agree with you on both points. We do need to think about how we're delivering, how we're serving Canadians differently. And I think it was Einstein who said, insanity is doing the same thing over and over again and expecting a different result. Mm -hmm. So to give you one example, we've been, as the CMA, we've been talking about virtual care. So the ability of patients to access health care virtually over the internet with their doctor. And I was in Hamilton yesterday, saw an incredible example of a physician, Dr. Richard Titus, who did a virtual visit with a patient who was in her home, and they were able to connect over the internet, and he was able to check her ear and listen to her heart. 
got the care she needed, she was happy with the service, and didn't have to leave her home. And I live in Winnipeg, and, you know, if I could have checkups with my senior patients where they're at home and they don't have to travel on icy winter roads and risk walking on icy sidewalks, I think that would be an opportunity across Canada to deliver health care differently. So we're, we're trying to look at different ways to deliver health care that are more innovative. But, and here's my but, I'm going to say at the same time, there are certain situations like our seniors that I think we do need a new infusion of federal money to the provinces to look specifically at the healthcare needs of our seniors. Because um, right now, they're underserved, and as our seniors get older, I think they're going to continue to need uh, more services, which is going to mean more money. But we need to also do things differently. I, I can't remember the number off the top of my head, but it, it's, uh, it's something like, isn't it like 30 or 40 percent, or maybe it's even higher, of all the health care money that is going to be spent on an individual it happens in the last 10 years of their lives? Definitely so. So I think it's about, you know, if you're under 65, on average, it might be about $2,700 per person. Once you're over 65, it's about four times that. And yeah, there's a certain amount that last 10 years of your life um, is most of the health care dollars are going to be spent on that. So, you know, we as a, as a Canadian society need to try to keep ourselves as healthy as possible. But we also need a healthcare system that is properly funded by government, that's funding the right services that, are, that we need. So more long-term care, more home care, mental health services. We didn't even talk about that. Um, so I think we need to also look at, you know, what's not being covered under the healthcare system, what are Canadians having to pay for out of pocket? And if it's medically needed, we should look at do those services need to be covered under the healthcare system? So, you know, we need to think of what we're doing now, think of more innovative ways to do it better, and then put money where we need to have it put, like towards our seniors. Absolutely. Uh, well, and we need to have that dialogue, and we've started that today, certainly, and you have with the report, Doctor. Thank you so much for the time today. It was great talking with you. Bill, it's my pleasure, and if I could say it one more time for your listeners, when those federal candidates come knocking on your door asking for your vote, please ask them specifically what is their plan to make our health care system better. And, and that's the way I think we as Canadians can start to have that conversation with our federal politicians. Thanks again, Doctor. My pleasure. Great talking with you. Dr. Gigi Ausler, of course, the president of the Canadian Medical Association. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on 900 CHML. The Bill Kelly Podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts from. You can also listen to The Bill Kelly Show weekdays from 9 till noon on 900 CHML. I'm Bill Kelly. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free, so you never miss an episode. And make sure that you rate and review.